Father, we do thank you and praise you for your great love that you have demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That you sent your only Son, and he willingly came, and he paid the price for our sins. And he died and rose from the dead and is at your right hand. Father, we thank you that you revealed him in the gospel and revealed our sin and our need for a Savior, your Son. And Father, I thank you for those of us who know you because of Christ that uh, we can grow now in the grace and knowledge of you and your Son. I pray you prepare our hearts so that we would receive your word and allow it to do by your Spirit its work in us so that you would be glorified and pleased. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We commit it to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever obeyed the Lord God and suffered for it? Have you ever done what is right and been slandered or been maligned for obeying the Lord? Have you ever been reviled for your good behavior in Christ? Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's at church. Uh, The reality is, if God should will it, we will suffer for doing what is right. And that suffering can be pretty serious, and it can be pretty long at times. And we can be tempted to respond in ways that may not be glorifying to God. So how do we respond in the midst of suffering for doing what is right? We come to a semi-conclusion to the answer of that question today as we look at the first six verses of 1 Peter chapter 4. Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4? And we're going to see how we should respond to suffering unjustly by arming ourselves with the mindset of Christ. A little bit of the context of First Peter. Peter is writing to believers in Asia Minor. It is about 64 A.D. And they are suffering, and they are about to suffer a great fiery ordeal under Nero's persecution. And we see here that Peter has already shown them the reality that they are strangers and sojourners, that this, this place is not their home. This is not their home. And for us as believers, this is not our home. We are temporary residents. We are temporary residents. And he has shared the reality of our great salvation in Jesus Christ, that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And within the context of our great salvation in Christ and our inheritance reserved for us in heaven and a salvation ready to be revealed, we are to fix our hope in Christ alone. We are to set, we are to be holy and live in the context of holy fear and love the body of Christ and yearn for the word of God. And we need to understand that we are being built up as a spiritual house, holy priests to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable through Jesus Christ. Acceptable because we have been, by his mercy, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. We're a distinct people to proclaim his excellencies. And then we came to the middle of chapter 2 where we saw the application portion of 1 Peter begin where we saw that we were to, as aliens and temporary residents on this earth, were to stay far away from fleshly lust, which wage war with our souls. And this statement is foundational for the next statement that comes concerning keeping our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Gentiles are non-believers. 
And the reason was that God might open doors as they slander us for our good deeds in Christ. They might glorify God in the day of visitation, the day he visits them, possibly with salvation. And then the reason we're to keep our, our, our behavior excellent, as we see, was the redemptive opportunities that God might bring forth. We saw how we are to behave in the relationship to government. We're to submit to governing authorities. We're to, through the king, honor all men. We saw how household slaves and masters, which mirrors our work relationship now, are to function. Realizing that even in those situations when we submit to God with conscience towards him and do what is right, even if we suffer for it, uh, this finds favor in his eyes. Because we've been called to this purpose. We've been called to follow in the footsteps of Christ, the tracing pattern of Christ in how he suffered unjust suffering and brought about our salvation. How he did that, we see that. And we are to respond like Christ did, not sinning in return, but entrusting ourselves to the one who judges righteously. Remember that Christ's righteous response in the context of the will of God brought about our salvation. That he bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to God. And then in chapter 3 we saw what wives are to be likewise in trusting themselves to the one who judges righteously and submitting to their husbands, putting on the heart of Christ, adorning their hearts and husbands living with their wives in an understanding way according to scripture, granting them honor as fellow heirs of the grace of life, that their prayers may not be hindered. And then all of us are to be like-minded, kind-hearted, brotherly, sympathetic. We're to have the heart and mind of Christ as we interact with one another. Because God's ears are, towards, are attentive to the prayer of the righteous. It is, and he is looking upon them, as we see. And as we looked in the further in chapter 3, we realized that we're not to be intimidated by those who persecute, but instead do what is right. We are to sanctify our, heart, our, our hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord of our hearts, being ready to give a defense for everyone who asks for the hope that is in us, yet with gentleness and reverence. We are to have our consciences right before the Lord, keep a clean conscience. And then, as we saw the example in the end of chapter 3, for Christ suffered for us to bring about our redemption. God used the worst sin from man upon the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God according to his predetermined plan to bring about the greatest good, our salvation. And that brings us to what we're going to see in chapter 4, how we as sojourners should respond to suffering unjustly. And we are going to see we're going to be commanded to arm ourselves with right thinking. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore... Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable, abominable idolatries, and in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has been for this purpose, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, may, they may live in the spirit according 
to the will of God. This is a tremendous passage, but yet within this passage, there are some pretty difficult verses to interpret. It's, it's said that verse 6 is one of the most difficult verses in the entire Bible to interpret. Now, that's possible. Um, anything, it's impossible to interpret apart from God's Spirit working in our hearts. But I think we can understand what Peter, inspired by the Spirit, intended as we study and divide the word rightly, yielding our hearts to Christ to understand what his intent was when we brought forth the word by his spirit so we'll look at that and i think if we just trust the lord to illuminate we'll get what he wants us to get out of it now before we begin i want to point out that this verse is based on one command these six verses excuse me and it's in verse one to arm yourselves everything else hinges around this you'll see there are fours and these things they're explaining things it all hinges around this one command So it's important to realize that. So how are we to respond to unjust suffering or suffering for doing what is right? You see, I believe we're going to see first that since Christ suffered unjustly at the hands of sinful men to bring about God's will, which is our redemption, we are thus to heavily arm ourselves with the same mindset. Well, what does that mean? Look at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the main phrase here in our passage is, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. And we have a phrase that leads into that. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same purpose. And so let's take a look at that phrase, arm yourselves with the same purpose. Then we'll come back to the beginning of the verse and then move on through. This is a command, actually, first of all. It's to arm yourself. And it's in a tense in the original language that speaks of complete the action. Complete the action. Just do it. Just do it. The term arm here speaks of equipping or providing or furnishing oneself with something, such as military arms. You know, if you arm a, if you arm a soldier, you're, you're giving him the, the weapons he needs to fight. He is being supplied those things. You know, if you arm yourself to defend yourself, you're, you're, you're taking out those things you need to defend yourself, right? Or to go into battle. And so here we are commanded to just get it done, to arm yourself. Well, what are we to arm ourselves with? Our text says, also with the same purpose. Now we'll get into the also in the beginning of this verse in a minute. We'll get into that. But uh, what are we to arm ourselves with? It's the same purpose. Also the same purpose. We are to equip ourselves for battle with the same purpose, as we'll see in a minute, in regards to suffering for doing what is right. Now, this term translated purpose speaks of thought, literally of thought or intention. Um, It's used in Hebrews 4.12 to speak of God's powerful word, which is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It speaks of your thinking. It speaks of intent in the mind. So what's he talking about? Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Arm yourself with the same mindset or thinking or intention. 
We are to prepare for battle by arming ourselves with the same thoughts, the same intention, as we will see, that was manifest in the person of Christ when he suffered for us to bring about our redemption. So look at the whole verse here now. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also. Notice how the also comes in. With the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, our passage begins with the phrase, therefore. It is looking back to what he has been previously speaking about. And he even illumines that in a little bit. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh. And more specifically, we see this in the end of chapter 2. And then from the middle and on, actually verse 18 to 22 in chapter 3. Uh, Take a look back in chapter 2, verse 20. Speaking of Christ's suffering in the flesh. Whenever you see the idea of Christ's suffering, it doesn't simply speak of just his physical suffering before he died. It is everything encompassing in the context of the culmination of him dying for our sins. 1 Peter 2.20 For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. For this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously." And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. And then look in chapter 3. Look in chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than what is wrong. It's, it's, it's better than suffering for sin. It's better to suffer for doing what is right. And he gives the example, which we saw last time, concerning Christ, his suffering. Look at 4, he explains, verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. He suffered unjustly to bring about God's perfect will. And he says, In order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he made proclamation of the Spirit's non-prison. Now we talked about this when we went through it who were once disobedient with the, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which, few, which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Now it's not talking about water baptism. He says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're saved when we recognize we're sinful and we appeal to God through Jesus Christ for salvation. And he says here, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Then our verse, therefore, in light of Christ's purposeful suffering, according to the will of God, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also for the same intent. Think the same way. Think the same way. 
Christ is our example of right thinking. His suffering was purposeful and according to the will of God. He obeyed the Father, entrusting himself to him. And God used the wickedness of men, according to his predetermined plan, to bring about the greatest suffering and wickedness, to bring about the greatest good, which is Christ dying for our sins and the defeat of Satan. Christ is our example of right thinking arm yourselves with the same mindset christ had when he was in the flesh and suffered according to the will of god that's what we're commanded to do seems impossible but it's not we have the word of god we can have the mind of christ if we allow our thoughts to be renewed with the word of god let me read some passages concerning the mindset of christ you can read all throughout scripture for it especially the new testament obviously But let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 and you'll see the mindset of Christ before he took on human flesh. Quite interesting. In Hebrews chapter 10, we have a conversation between the Son and the Father about the body that has been prepared for him to take on human flesh, to do his will, to bring about our salvation. It's an amazing portion of Scripture. Hebrews 10 verse 4. And we see the mindset of Christ. From the beginning, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hey, they were just shadows. That's the point he's been making, pointing to what Christ would do. Therefore, when he comes into the world, that's speaking of Christ coming into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, notice the mindset. Behold, I have come to, I have come. It is in the book of the roll, the roll of the book, it is written in me to do thy will, O God. After saying sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. It's the old, which is the shadow, to establish the new covenant. By this will, Christ coming to take on human flesh to to die for us, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Behold, I have come to do my will. His purpose on earth was to do the Father's will. To do the Father's will. We're pretty familiar with Philippians' passage concerning the mind of Christ. Well, let's turn there. Philippians chapter 2. And folks, we default to our own thinking so quickly. It just takes a minute. It takes someone to say something or to look at something or to see something or think something. So quickly, our minds go back to the way we used to think when we weren't following Christ. And we need to renew our minds and allow his word to refresh us continually. Philippians chapter 2, and let's start at verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness, or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each one of you regard one another as more important than himself. This is what we'll see command based on the mindset of Christ. Christ did nothing out of selfishness. He did nothing for vainglory at all. He did nothing sinful. But let you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then we see this. Have this attitude or it's really best translated mind have this mind in yourselves which was also in christ jesus have 
the thinking of Christ. And then he explains it. He says, uh, who, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. Notice this. This is the mindset and the attitude underneath. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Have this mindset. I want to do your will, Lord God. I want to obey your word, regardless of what happens. I trust you. You're good. You're kind. You're working out for your glory. There are the sufferings, but the glories to follow. First Peter chapter 2, um, we see the mindset of Christ, who committed no sin, nor would he deceit, was found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile or turn. While suffering, he uttered no threats. This is verse 23. But kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. That was the mindset of God in human flesh. He didn't rely on himself at all. That is amazing. He humbled himself. God in human flesh, not relying on himself at all, but relying on the Father. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. We need to have the same thinking during suffering that Christ did. I want to do your will, but I'm trusting you to take care of all the stuff that's happening. I'm trusting you that you're either going to save these people or you're going to judge them. You're going to take care of it. I'm trusting you, Lord God. I'm trusting you. John chapter 6, verse 38. I'll read this for you. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's the battle every single day for us as believers. My will or thy will. And it becomes very subtle at times. We can fool ourselves to think God's will is, is, uh, is my will, right? But we need to be willing in our heart of hearts to say to the Lord, in our heart of hearts, no fake, phony piousness, I want to do your will, Lord God. No, in our heart, Lord God, whatever you want, I'm willing to do it. Whatever decision, Lord God, I'm willing to do it. Lead me, guide me. This is what I want, Lord God, but I, I, not my will, but thy will be done. You see, we are to arm ourselves, which implies there's a battle going on, by the way. You don't have arms when there's not a conflict. You see, we have an enemy who wants to destroy us, who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And if we are not thinking rightly in the midst of suffering, we can fall very easily. Turn to 1 Peter 5. We see this in 1 Peter 5. This final encouragement from Peter at the end of the book. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith. You'll see that little yours in italics. Firm in the faith, firm in the truth concerning Christ, trusting him. Firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are around the world. And after you have suffered a little while, for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
we have an enemy and the enemy takes advantage of us when we are suffering and by the way those who are in his domain are the reason why we're suffering if it's unjust suffering by the way but god is saving people and we're praying for that in the context of the difficulties that come our way we are to arm ourselves with the same intent as christ had when he suffered for our salvation not my will but thy will be done he understood what god was doing you know when he told peter that he needed to go to the cross that he would have to die and he would be raised on the third day peter said don't do it and god said get behind me satan or jesus said that god in flesh you were thinking man's thoughts and not god's the reality is God's will was very clear for Christ and he understood it and he did it. And God's will, as we'll see, is in his word for us. And we need to have the mindset of Christ. We need to think rightly. It's all in the mind. Our, our, the Christian walk is in the mind, folks. The battle is here and it happens every day. We need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We are to put on the shield of faith, which will extinguish every missile, fiery missile. The Lord Jesus kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And we are to have the same thinking. We are to arm ourselves, to take up the weapons and arm our thinking with the same thinking. Not my will, but thy will be done. We entrust ourselves to the one who judges righteously. Lord, you are going to take care of it. I trust you in this. I trust you. You know, we are not to be, Romans 12, conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds, that, that we would prove what his will is, Romans 12, too. Heavily arm yourself with a Christ-like mindset regarding unjust suffering for doing his will. You see, God is working out through the difficult, horrible things, and we need to arm ourselves knowing that he works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8. My question is, are you obeying this command? Did you know about this command? Sometimes we don't know what God says, but now we do. We're to arm ourselves, heavily arm ourselves with Christ-like thinking. Now the reality is this only applies to believers. And as we're going to see in a minute, when we suffer for doing what is right, it is an evidence that we have come into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, suffering's not all the time, but when we do, if God should so will, as we'll see. So with this in mind, we must arm ourselves. But notice, we're also going to see that we need to understand when unjust suffering comes that we, it is an evidence that we have made a break from sin, that we're believers. Take a look at verse 1 now and verse, verse the end and the verse 2. I'm actually, I'll read through 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, we understand that, Arm yourselves also with the same intent, purpose, because, this is difficult, he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is difficult, but I think we can get it. Because if we don't stop reading, we'll understand this. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but the will of God. You go, what's going on here? And there are a ton of interpretations here. And, and lots of them have biblical concepts that are true. You know, sometimes you can have someone interpret something that has a biblical truth attached to it from somewhere else, but it's not what God is intending in that passage. We want to know what God intended here. 
And there are many interpretations that have biblical truths found in other places that are thrown into this passage here at this point. But I believe our text reveals the right interpretation if we look at it closely. Notice what he says in the end of verse 1. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, one of the interpretations is it's still speaking of Christ's suffering. Now, I can't buy that because of the word ceased from sin. You see, Christ Jesus died for our sins. He died to sin, but he never was a sinner who stopped sinning. Do you see what I'm saying? Because he who has suffered has ceased from sin. And then look at verse 2. We have the explanation. So as so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer. Christ never lived for the lust of men, by the way. He's saying in this context, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but the will of God. You see, we are all sinners. We are all sinners. And we used to live, as we'll see in a moment, for our own desires. We used to live for our own desires. But when we came to Christ, we no longer live for that. If you're a true believer, you no longer live for your own desires. You live for the will of God, by and large, as we'll see. Yes, we fail. Uh, the reality is we don't stop sinning completely. Uh, if, anyone say, if we say we have no sin, we're liars. But by and large, we are changed. And we no longer, in a day-in-and-day-out day day way, live for our own will. We live for the will of God. And he's saying here, if you have suffered like Christ has suffered, then it's you have made a break with sin. Because guess what? When you make a break with sin, then you suffer for it because sinners, as we'll see, will malign you. When you make a break from living the way you used to live, those who live that way around you are going to malign you. So we have this, this tremendous statement, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased or stopped in a sense, sinning. So as, and here's the explanation, verse 2, to live the rest of the time in the flesh, it's talking about our, our right now, no longer for the lusts of men, but the will of God. You see, so I can't see that part, the because part, speaking of Christ, because it explains after that that it's, we should live no longer in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. This term live here is an interesting Greek word, bio, bio, and it means the way you spend your life. You see, we sin, I sin, you sin. No one is sinless. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we live a different life. If you've really come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you may not have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and your life is no different. But we live for his will it's the way you spend the way you spend his your life you see before we came to christ we used to live in the flesh for the lusts of men look back what peter says in first uh, peter 1 14 we used to live the term lusts epithumia speaks of a, de- a longing a desire or a passion what your longing is what your desire is 1 Peter 1.14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. You had former lusts, former desires. 1 Peter 2.11, turn to 1 Peter 2.11. 1 
Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among Gentiles. Don't live the way you used to live. We as believers need to be exhorted that. Yes, we have made a break with sin, but we can be tempted in those same areas, and we are tempted in those same areas. But if you've come to Christ and you are suffering for doing what is right, it is an evidence you have made a break from sin, so as to live no longer your time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. If you have made a break from sin, you now want to obey God. You want to follow him. Yes, you fail. Yes, you sin. But you want to follow Christ. You're obeying his word. You've made a break from sin. You no longer live for the lusts of men, which we'll see in a minute. We live for the will of God, the thelema of God. And that word thelema means what one has decided. It speaks of a design or purpose or will. You see, when we weren't saved, we lived for ourselves. We were our own gods. We, when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, if you truly did, we submitted our hearts to him, what he decided. You know, when you come to faith in Christ, God's word is alive. And his word says this, you go, okay, yes. You go here, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly, yes. There's no argument with God's word if you've truly come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and, and sin gets in the way, but I'm talking about, by and large, the reality of those who will suffer for doing what is right. That means it's an evidence. You've given up your will, you're doing his will, and you're suffering for it. Suffering for it. Well, where is God's will found? Where is what he has decided concerning us found? It is found and revealed in his word, and it is that which is obeyed by his power and strength. It is to be done. Look at to Matthew uh, chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12. And then I'm going to go to Luke chapter 8 after this. Matthew 12, verse 47. This is a helpful portion to know what God's will is. Matthew 12:47. And someone said to him, this is to Jesus, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside standing to speak to you. By the way, Jesus had brothers. He became human flesh, right? But he answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. These who are whom I'm truly related to. That's what he's saying. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my mother. He is my brother, excuse me, sister and mother. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven does God's will. Now, what does that mean? Go to Luke chapter 8. We have Luke sharing this occasion in a different different way. And it may even be a different occasion, some say. Luke chapter 8, verse 20. And it was reported to him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are what? Those who hear the word of God and do it. You see, we saw in the other portion, those who do the Father's will. God's word reveals God's will. God's word reveals God's will for us. God's desire, his intent for us is revealed in his word. And when you have been saved, even though we fail and fall, David failed and fell, right? Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 22. 
But David was a true believer. David was a true believer, and guess what characterized him? A break from sin and a desire to do God's will. Take a look at uh, Acts chapter 13, 22. This is uh, what God says through David, through, about David through Paul. Acts 13, 22. And after he removed him, he, now speaking of Saul being removed by God, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he has also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. David wasn't perfect, but he was a true believer. He had made a break from his own desires, which is how you are when you're not saved, to desire to do the will of God. You see, what about Matthew chapter 7? Turn into Matthew chapter 7. You know, a lot of people say, Lord, Lord, a lot of people say, I love Jesus. But there are not many people who do his will because they have been redeemed and have the ability to hear his word and then obey. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But what? He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And evidence that you have truly been saved is you now obey God's word. You obey him. Now, it's not perfect. There's a changed heart. There's the word written on our hearts. We can understand it because we have his spirit. And notice what he says. Many will on that day, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast a name and cast out demons in your name for many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who do lawlessness. People who don't know Christ do their own will. It's sin and lawlessness. People who know Christ obey God's word. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them. And he gives the comparison of one who built on the rock and one who built on the sand. It is a defining factor in the reality of salvation. And guess what? If you're doing his will, it's an evidence you've made a break from sin and you're probably going to suffer for it at some time in some relationships. And when that happens, we are to heavily arm ourselves with the mindset of Christ. So friend, let me ask you, what do you live for? Do you live for your own desire? Do you obey your own desire? What do you, who do you obey? That's just what your heart wants to do. Or do you, by God's strength and ability, obey the word, his will revealed in the written word? This is an evidence that you have been changed, that you've ceased from sin so as to live no longer, to have the course of life. Now, you fail in the way no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. If you've truly come to faith, then you're living, you're going to be living for the will of God. Not perfectly. God will spank. So notice at this point, we see that true believers who are suffering like Christ is an evidence that they are because they've made a break with sin. And guess what? Now, Peter adds an eternal perspective to encourage us. Some past motivation in relation to the way we used to live, present reality about, being suf- about suffering, and future reality about those who are causing your suffering. 
Look at, uh, again, let's go verse 1, and then we'll read through verse 3. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That implies you were living that way. So as, the explanation, to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And now we have an, a further explanation. See the word for in verse 3. More explanation here. For, and they're going to be past, present, and future realities. Okay? For the time already is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable, abominable idolatries. Now, verse 3 in the original language has some very, has some very vivid language. The term already passed means to pass by or go by. The time to have carried out the boule or desire or will of the Gentiles has already passed. It's passed by. It's passed by. You have gone past that. You've been delivered from that. It's already passed. It's already passed. That pastime is over. If you've come to faith, it's over. He's not saying there was enough time for you to get it out of your system like some might say. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying to the believer who has ceased from sin because they're truly saved, not ceased from sinning, but living a lifestyle for themselves versus for God. He says time already has passed. It's, it's sufficient. It's been done. And notice he says uh, to carry out or to work out the bully or desire of Gentiles are really unbelievers. That's what it means in this context. And he says in the middle of verse 3, having in that past time pursued a course, and that word course means a journey, having journeyed, this was your course of life, of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And he'll say, well, I never did that before I was saved. Well, the reality is we need to understand the culture. In the culture in which they were saved, if you were a non-believer, this was just how life was. Now, in our culture, it's the same stuff, but we've lived in a moralized Christian culture, so it's, it's kind of glossed over and it's different, but it's the same, same stuff as we'll see. The term sensuality speaks of wanton pleasure, not wanton pleasure, wanton pleasure, right? Living without moral restraint. There's no restraint. If I want to do something that's immoral, I do it. Whatever it is. Uh, no moral restraint in regards to sexuality. Go to the bar, take someone home. Lust, adultery, fornication, pornography. Here it is. It's a lifestyle. It's just the way we live. We see that on TV. I'll tell you right now. You watch TV. It's sensuality. It's wanton pleasure. The second word translated lust speaks of desires in a negative way, and it can encompass all kinds of stuff. The third one, drunkenness, is obvious, and it's just the way these believers in Asia Minor lived. Drunkenness. So they live. Carousing. Interesting word. Originally spoke of a festive procession in honor of the wine god. So it was really drunkenness, but in a crowd. You know, you got your own drunkenness, and then you got crowd drunkenness, right? You see that at a, at a game or some soccer game. People that are drunk together. Woo! You know, it's just this, this carousing, right? Okay? Reveling in it. 
drinking parties. Now this, it seems like it's all drinking, but this has to do really literally with drunken orgies. And then abominable idolatries, which is what this was all connected with, worship of idols. That's the way those who didn't know Christ lived in Asia Minor. It was the norm. It was the norm. And you see, in our culture, we are somewhat moral because we used to be based on a Christian value system in the past with some Christians who were in our founding, some. And Peter's saying back to here that this is just the way you lived when you didn't know Christ. It's the way you were. And if you didn't participate in the booze and the sex and the idols, they believe something was wrong with you. What is wrong with that guy? Something's happened. What's going on? And we'll see in a minute. They're surprised. They're, they're stunned. And they malign you. And the same thing in our culture, but it's different, right? It's been glossed over. It's more moralized. But it's the same stuff. It's the same stuff. So Peter is saying, by the inspired, inspired by, the time, by the Spirit, time is up. It's passed by already. You don't live that way. You don't. You live now for the will of God, and guess what? It affects your present reality. Look at verse 4. And in all this. All what? All the stuff non-believers do by nature. And in this, they are surprised. The term surprise comes from the same word that is translated entertain strangers, like entertaining angels. Entertaining a stranger. It's, it's what? It's a strange. They really believe it is strange that you don't do these things anymore. And guess what? He says, and they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. They're surprised, and guess what? Here's what happens. When you've made a break with sin, sinners malign you. They malign you. That's what was happening here. All this, the things that were spoken of, non-believers of Peter's day, the drunkenness, the sex, the idolatry, we have all that. It's just different. It looks different here, right? We have it. Sensuality. They're surprised. They think it's strange, and they malign you. The term malign blasphemo speaks of speaking evil, speaking injuriously. And it's in a tense that speaks of a continual habitual evil speaking and speaking injuriously. Indeed, we saw that in 1 Peter earlier that much of the suffering these believers were going through had to do with verbal insults. Look back at 1 Peter 2.12. 1 Peter 2.12. You know, not always are we going to get hung for, for, for following Christ. Yes, that can happen, and it does happen. But more often than not, like we see in Matthew 5, when people say things falsely about you on account of me, Jesus said, when you suffer for righteousness. 1 Peter 2:12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, that's non-believers, so that in the thing in which they what? Slander you as evildoers, they may account of your good deeds as they observe them and glorify God in the day of visitation. You're doing the right thing. You're living for Christ. And now they are maligning you. Look up at 1 Peter 3.16. And keep a good conscience. So that in the thing in which you are what? Slandered. 
Those who revile. Remember Jesus, he was threatened. He was reviled, right? Um, Your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You see, Jesus was rejected by men, and we are following in his footsteps. He was rejected by men. Look back earlier in 1 Peter. Rejected by men, but precious in the sight of God. They don't know Christ. They're in their sin. They're in Satan's domain. And, they're, they're, and they will, by their very nature, think it is strange that you do not act and live the way they live. That you don't like the stuff that they like. And therefore, they will revile, slander, malign believers for doing what is right. And we are to heavily arm ourselves with the mindset of Christ. And notice you have the past reality. Time's past for you. You're no longer in that. That's done. But now that same thing that you used to do, they now do and malign you. Present reality. Now the future reality. Guess what? But, verse 5, they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The, the, the but is not in the original Greek, but the context supports the contrast. So they've been put that into interpret. If you know language and translation, that's, that's reasonable. But they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And this should terrify you if you're not saved. There's judgment. You will give an account to the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. John 5.22, he has given all judgment into the Son. The Son is the judge. Christ is the judge. There is judgment for sin. There is a judgment day. It is appointed man once to die, and then the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. We see a judgment day. Let me share a few passages. Matthew 10, verse 14. And whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, you go out of that house, that city, shake off the dust of you. This one he was commissioning disciples. Truly, I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. Day of judgment. Matthew 12, 35. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil, his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, by your words shall be condemned. Every word, every thought, every deed, God will call you to account for in the day of judgment. You know, it's interesting. Never mind. God will call account. God will call account. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Solomon uh, prayed for wisdom rather than riches. God gave him both. And in his wisdom, he tried to do everything. And it's all vanity. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, he says, here's the conclusion. When all is said and done, here's the conclusion. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. The end of Ecclesiastes. This is the conclusion. When all has been heard... This is the wisest man who ever walked the face of the earth. This is the conclusion. Is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act into judgment. Everything that which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. There is a judgment day. Everything. 
We see that in Acts chapter 17. Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, Paul shares, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that all should rep- everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God says repent because there is a judgment. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants you to repent, trust in Christ and be saved and you will not be judged for your sin. You're pardoned. But if you reject Christ, you will stand before him, give an account for every word, deed, thought, everything. And if you are not saved, well, obviously at that point, you're, you're going to head to what Scripture calls the second death. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. You see, people who live for their own will will give an account. They may seem like they're getting away with it. They may be hurting you. They're going to give an account. There is a future reality that you need to arm yourself with and think about. Remember Jesus? He kept entrusting himself to the what? The one who judges righteously. He's going to take care of it. I'm going to obey. You see? Revelation 20, verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. Revelation 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. That's a body and soul. That's a resurrection under judgment, by the way, which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's forever and ever and ever. You think life is bad right now? It's nothing compared to eternity without Christ and punishment. Every deed, every word, every thought, you will be judged. You can sit here and laugh at me and mock me, whatever. You will stand before him someday, and I pray that you are humble before that day. And you turn to Christ and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from the wrath of God to come. So back to our passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5. But they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and dead. Ignorance is no excuse. They're going to give an account. To him who is ready to judge, he is standing at the door, James chapter 5, right there, ready. It is the precipice of eternity. Ready to judge the living and the dead speaks of everyone who will be under judgment. Those who are apart from Christ. For those of you who have not been saved through faith in Jesus Christ, God is calling for you to repent. If you do not, you will give an account and you'll be thrown in the lake of fire. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Right at the door. You think of someone at the door, it's right there. It's right there. You see, and when you're suffering, the people who are doing it, they're not going to get away with it. Past reality, you've gone past that because you came to Christ. Present reality, you're suffering because you don't do it. Future reality, they will be judged because of what they do. Saying, arm yourself with the same purpose. Thinking rightly about your suffering. Submit yourself to God. Trust in the one who judges righteously. Understand God is using your temporal suffering to bring about redemptive purposes. And this happened because you got saved and you're no longer living for the lust of men, but for, your, for, the, lust, for the desire of God. 
time past has gone by, you don't live that way, you're maligned for it, but the future is they'll be judged. That's the flow of thought here. That's what's going on. And then we have this last verse, be encouraged, I believe, because our response to the gospel, although we might be temporarily judged by men, we live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Look at verse 6. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Now I told you before, this is one of the most difficult verses in the Bible to interpret. That's what people say. What's the most difficult verse? If you talk to theologians, they'll say, well, First Peter 6, of course. The reality is, it is a difficult verse to interpret, but I don't believe it's so difficult we can't understand the intent. If we trust the Lord and, and rightly divide it in its context, we've seen the flow of thought up to this point, haven't we? We know what's going on, and I believe we can understand this if we look at it rightly. Notice verse 6 begins with the phrase, for. It's an explanation. It doesn't stand on its own. Now, there's at least 20 interpretations of this verse, and, and I'm not going to go through them, but I'm going to tell you what I think it's saying. For. For. It's explaining what was previously spoken of. They're going to be judged for their sin. They're going to be judged. But what's the overall context? Think properly. You've left that. You've made a break. You're living for the will of God, right? Notice what he says here. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. Now that throws everybody off. I think what it's saying is the gospel's been preached and the result is, if you look at this, that you may live in the Spirit. The result of this verse is that whoever has responded to the gospel is that they're going to live in the Spirit according to the will of God or according to God. That's the result. You come to faith through Jesus Christ, you're going to live, right? And notice what he says. It's been preached. Even to those who are dead, I think he's referring to those believers who had passed away, okay? It says even or also in that sense. Not that it's being preached to dead people, okay? But notice the passage. Verse 6, those who have had the gospel preached to them, even those who are dead, or also, you could say, you could say it this way, the gospel has been preached also to those who have passed away, and then for a reason, for a reason, middle of verse 6, that though they, who's the they? The those the gospel's been preached to, okay? Who are, are judged, are, they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live... In the Spirit, according to the will of God. You go, okay, I'm still getting confused here, but another helpful portion here is, in this passage, the term as men really could be according to man. Same language. And the the other portion, according to God. According to God. And as I share this, I I think, now I'm going to give you my translation here, that... And the word is in there. On one hand, they may be judged in the flesh according to men. They may live according to the Spirit, in the Spirit according to God. What's the context? Men are making judgments. They're maligning you. Yes, you are experiencing a temporal judgment in that sense. But you're going to live. You're going to live. Man is doing this. They're maligning you. But because of the gospel, you are living according to God. 
that those of you who have responded to the gospel, including those who had already passed away, although you might be judged in the sphere of the flesh, remember back in verse 18 of chapter 3, according to men, according to men, they're saying they're maligning you. That's the context. Although they malign you and, and judge you, you, because of the gospel, will live in the realm of the Spirit according to God. I think that's what it's saying. I think that's what it's saying. You have life. God has redeemed you. You're not going to be judged. They're going to be judged. It may seem like you're being judged, and you are by them, but they're the ones that are going to be judged, and you are the one who is alive. Be encouraged. Men may judge you now, and you may suffer now, but they're going to be judged. You're the one who has life, that you may live in the realm or sphere of the Spirit according to God. You see, because the response of the gospel, you've broken from sin, the world may temporarily judge you. And they do. Look at you. You pious person, you wicked person. You know, they they malign you, speak evil of you. But they're the ones that are going to be judged. They don't repent. I think that's what he's talking about. Therefore, arm yourself with the right mindset. The mindset of Christ. God will take care of those who judge you. Trust yourself to the one who judges righteously. He's either going to save them, possibly through your responses, opening the door for the gospel, or he's going to judge them. The judge is standing right at the door. You arm yourself with the same intent and purpose of Christ. Brother and sister, we're commanded to arm ourselves with the mindset of Christ in regards to unjust suffering. This implies there's a battle going on. We need to think like Christ thought. And the only way to arm ourselves that way is to be in the Word of God, to understand that, to submit to Him. Get your thinking right. Entrust yourself to the one who judges righteously. Respond rightly. He may be opening the door for the gospel through your righteous response to suffering, and those who don't respond will go to judgment. Some of you are here today on the edge of God's judgment could die today. Kids die. Adults die. You could die today. And if you die, you'll stand before the Lord and eventually you will give an account for every word and deed. And if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be thrown into the lake of fire. Turn to Christ. He took the penalty for sin upon himself. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Brother and sister, we need to arm ourselves. We need to get our thoughts in order. When we're suffering, it can get scrambled. We can get concerned and fearful and whatever it might be. God's got it under control. If you've made a break with sin, you're probably going to suffer here and there. God's working through it, just like he did with Christ for the ultimate good. Be a sober spirit, be on the alert for your adversary. The devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren around who are, around, who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever 
and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Although it's difficult to understand, we can understand the main point. We are to arm ourselves with the intent that your son had and was revealed in your word. We're to think rightly about the suffering we might encounter because we've made a break with sin and are now walking with you. Lord, I pray for anyone here who really hasn't made a break. They haven't truly come to faith in your son, Jesus. I pray today would be the day of salvation, that they'd be convicted by your spirit of their sin and judgment, and that they would turn to the only Savior, your son, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, and believe in him. Father, for those of us who know you, may we arm ourselves heavily with your truth. May we walk in a manner that is worthy of this great calling. Pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.